Well, last night we were talking about habits of grace. We defined habits of grace, and I'm actually going to tell you what I think they are. I said on Sunday, if you were there in chapel, that I think there are nine things we devote ourselves to so that we grow. Nine things. There are other things we do, but I think the big categories are not. I've been thinking about this for years and trying to make it clear and simple for people because I'm always amazed what a mystery spiritual growth is in the minds of so many people. Now, I do think spiritual growth is mysterious, but I don't think what we do to grow is mysterious. I think the timing of spiritual growth God's way of somehow working sovereignly in finite creatures as an infinite being in his way where he does the work in our hearts and it's really our, our hearts that he's doing it in. There's a lot of mystery in how, one, we become new creatures in Christ and how we grow as new creatures in Christ. But I don't think the mystery lies in our role in that. How God does it. I, I'm actually baffled sometimes at the slowness of my own growth. I've been at it a long time. I've been a Christian as long as I can remember. I trusted Jesus at some point as a little kid. I used to say, when people would ask me, how old were you when you became a Christian? I used to say six years old, so Baptists really believed I was a Christian. But I don't actually know. I don't actually know. I, I was just saying that so people didn't doubt me. But I can't remember when it happened. But like Ruth Bell Graham said, I can't remember when the sun came up, but I know it's shining on me. I can't remember a time in my life I wasn't aware of my relationship with Jesus. My mother would sit me on her lap and read The Bible in Pictures for Little Eyes by Ken Taylor to me. Anybody read that to your kids or read it yourselves as a kid? Who read it as a kid? Who read it to your kids? Yes. It's got great little questions after. At some point, as a little kid, I realized that I needed a Savior and that Jesus was that Savior. And he became the most important person, thing, idea in my life for the rest of my life. And it's always been that way. It doesn't mean I haven't battled sin and idolatry and distraction and, and immaturity. But Jesus is everything. But I'm amazed at how... How slow my growth has been, especially in some areas. I think I mentioned maybe last night that prayer has been especially hard, or maybe I said that Sunday, I can't remember. But, but the timing of our growth, the actual way it ends up happening, often our growth is imperceptible, and we need to realize that patient endurance over the long haul is what the Bible emphasizes for spiritual growth as disciples of Jesus. Remember my son was about... I think he was 10, and he said, Dad, can I go to the gym and, and work out with you? And I said, yeah, let's go. So we went, and, you know, I spotted him, and I showed him how to do different lifts and stuff, and we pulled up into the driveway when we were done, and he jetted out of the car. I thought he had to go to the bathroom really bad or something. He got out so fast, but I went in, and he wasn't in the bathroom, and I'm looking around for him, and he's in his room standing in front of the mirror with his shirt off, looking crestfallen and I said Sam what's wrong and he said dad I don't look any different I said oh Sam sit down I need to tell you how this works and we ex I explained to him the way we grow physically and I it was great because I was able to say you know what Sam the same is true in the way we grow spiritually 
And the same is true in the way we grow intellectually and emotionally and relationally. It's mostly through disciplined, hard-focused work over time and patient endurance. And before you know it, often without even being aware of it fully, you're starting to look more like Jesus. And the fruit of the Spirit is starting to show up in your life. And we actually need to be really good and helpful to one another in holding up a mirror. Yes, at times to point out sin and, and to bring correction and rebuke, but I would say mostly to hold up a mirror and say, I see so much of God's grace in you. I see him at work in your life. It's undeniable because, you know, when you grow, it's sort of imperceptible. So I, I teach college, and I watch these freshmen. There's some freshmen who show up their first semester of college, and they look like they're 14. You know what I'm talking about? They got like one hair they shave, and, that, and that's it. And then they'll go through their freshman year, and then they'll go home for the summer, and they'll come back, and I'll say, dude, what happened to you? And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, over the summer, you got your man body. How did that happen, right? And he's like, what are you talking about? He, he's clueless about it. Because when we grow, we're often unaware of it. It, there's an imperceptible, incremental way we grow that can be discouraging at times. In the same way, when we seek to grow in other ways, it can be discouraging. But I don't think the problem is in knowing what to do. I read somebody said one time that it's not what I don't understand in the Bible that troubles me. It's what I do understand in the Bible that troubles me. Mainly because what I do understand are the things I'm responsible for. And that's what's troubling me. And so for us to say there's a mystery in the timing of our growth, there's a mystery in the way it happens, there's a mystery in God's timing, it, it is miraculous. It's a work of the Spirit transforming us and doing what only the Spirit can do and what we desperately need for Him to do. So it's not a mystery, though, what we do. I, I'm amazed at how, how confused we can be and uncertain we can be about just what it is we devote ourselves to. But last, last night we talked about habits of grace. And just if you weren't here, habits of grace are how we grow, or spiritual disciplines, practice with our bodies, mostly in normal life, rooted in the local church. And their habits of grace, growth and godliness, is a gift of God through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit. We unpacked this definition with the bulk of our time last night. Before we dive in and keep moving, any questions lingering from last night? I heard there was at least one good debate back in the cabin after last night, which actually absolutely delights my soul, that you'd go back and argue as a family. That's beautiful. And, and talk about things because these ideas matter. You know, I just led a tour with my wife through Germany on the Reformation. And it was incredible. And it was just amazing to me that, that there are statues and streets named after Luther and Melanchthon and these other reformers. And, and there are museums made of their homes. And I'm thinking, these are people. And it wasn't just the reformers, it, it was the people at the universities. These are people who were the heroes of the culture. And you know what they did? They helped people think well. They read deeply and thought deeply and wrote deeply and helped people understand truth. And those were the heroes. Not, not movie stars, not 
TikTok personalities. You, in our day, you can have a career as a personality. That's what, you know, some people, that's what they are. They're a, they're a personality. That's what they say. They do for a living. I didn't know that was, that was a vocation. I just thought that's what you were. But the people, you know, and the experts anymore are not people who actually know what they're talking about. It's, it's one of the biggest problems of our day. As good as the internet has been for the world in some wonderful ways, one of the problems is it's given everybody the idea they can be an expert, and all they have to be able to do to do it is start a blog, right? And that makes you an expert, and you can just make your, your views public. Like, President Biden wanted to do something about the perceived increase in Asian hatred, people, people hating Asian, you know what I'm talking about? So you know what is, he did? Did you hear what he did to, to, to get advice on how to deal with Asian hate? He called in a Korean boy band to talk to them. Like 19-year-old Korean young men who sing in a boy band were advising our president on how to deal with a racial cultural issue. We've completely lost our minds. As if those young men have, and they've probably been singing since they were 12, and that's it. I'm not sure if they read it all. <laughs> right? And so... To think well, I love that some of you went back to your cabin and talked about the ideas we, we, we talked about last night and raised questions. And we've got to learn to think well. I'm amazed that so many of people, people I talk to, they're not even one question deep on their beliefs. They may spout with confidence, but once you start asking real basic questions like, what do you mean by that? Or where are you getting that idea? They don't know. They can't give you a definition to these fundamental ideas they live their lives based upon. They just heard it from Oprah. And then they're running with it. And so we've got to be people who think well and think deeply and not like the shallow norm in our culture. Okay. Any questions about last night? Comments from last night? Things to disagree on? Say again? Oh, in the cabin? It was on um, the resurrection of the body. And if, if, if people have a body after they die or they await the, the future resurrection. That's what I heard it was on. It was, it's all over camp. It was a big family squabble. I think, <laughs> I th I think some of the people went home last night angry over the debate. <laughs> That's what I heard. I'm not sure. Okay. Anything else? All right, let's roll. So, I love to know the goal. I told you last night I'm an impatient person. And there, there are very few things in life that just eat at me more than, than getting lost and then getting back on the, high, the freeway, we'll call it, the highway, as we used to say back in the Northeast, back on the highway, and I'm stuck in traffic, and I realize I'm going in the wrong direction. Have you had that experience? Not only are you lost wasting time to where you need to go, you're actually going in the wrong direction. So the time you're spending isn't adding up to anything, but not, not even fruitless, but counterproductive activity. That, ah, can anybody, yeah, somebody can relate to me. Yeah, tell me your name. Yeah, Sam. I can tell we're, we're similar in some ways. Yeah, um, it's so I don't want to do that in traffic when I'm going somewhere, and I certainly don't want to do it with my life. 
I really am deeply concerned about knowing the goals of everything I'm doing. Like, you know the game Apples to Apples? Most people I know love that game. I have the hardest time enjoying that game. The whole time I'm saying, so what's the goal? And how do you win? It's so ambiguous, right? Isn't it? It's like he makes it. So anyway, I don't want to do this with big stuff, my life. And so the goal of our growth, let's not just assume growth is good. People assume all sorts of things. You throw out a word, diversity. Yes. What does that mean? What kind of diversity? Any kind of diversity? There are all sorts of diversity I don't want, right? Is there sorts of diversity you don't want, right? Good. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We, we have words that used to be used quite positively that never get used positively anymore, like discriminate. You never discriminate, right? I hope you do. Starting with the food you order at the restaurant, do you have discriminating tastes, right? Are you able to discriminate well be, between, between good and bad food options or good and bad music options or entertainment choices? Discriminating taste, discriminating capacity. It's called discernment. It's called critical thinking. And so we set a goal and then we figure out, as we said, how to get their best. I not only want the right goal, I want to know how to get there in the best way. Right, so I need to know the goal of this growth. I don't just want to grow for the sake of growth. I want to know what it's about in its intimacy with and enjoyment of God. That's what it is. That's what God created you for more than anything else. That's it. Anything else pales in comparison as a goal for your life that compared with intimacy with and enjoyment of God. And then when that's happening in your life, when you're growing, intimacy with God and enjoyment of God should be deepening, increasing in your life. And that will then, as a byproduct, as a byproduct, bear fruit and glorify Him as you work out the gospel. Work out the gospel, not work for the gospel. Huge difference. That word is an eternity of difference. We don't work for the gospel. We don't work for our salvation. We don't work out our, we, we don't work for our faith with fear and trembling. We work out our faith with fear and trembling. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered, Christ also suffered once for sins. It's done. When he said it's finished on the cross, he meant it. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, Adam and the rest of us ever since. Why? So you could just be righteous, yes, but why? To bring you to God. It's amazing to me how often the Christian life and things like spiritual growth end up being very self-focused. Even pursuing a right understanding of our identity in Christ, I think can very easily become very self-focused and even a narcissistic endeavor. Because when you seek to know your identity in Christ, don't rush past Christ. You want to know him. That's got to be the bulk of your attention. Jesus. And then knowing who you are in him will naturally flow from that. But don't rush past Jesus to yourself to find your identity in him. So, so let's focus on Christ and knowing him intimately as well as we can. According to the scriptures, as the spirit helps us among the people of God. We want to know Christ, that he might bring us to God. That's why we're declared righteous, not just so we could be these nice, righteous people. That's moralism. That's religiosity. 
but to bring us to God because the wages of sin is death. Because without the, the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So we have our sins forgiven, we're declared righteous. And what that does is it opens up the curtain that we're, we can walk into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, and not be annihilated and judged and have the wrath of God poured out on us because Jesus did that for us. Being put to death in the flesh, that's us. We're identified with Him but made alive in the Spirit. We died with Jesus, we were raised with Jesus. Listen to this passage from Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. In order that, just as just, is that amazing? Not kind of, sort of, like Jesus, but just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father. That's why the Bible calls him the first fruits, the, the pioneer, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who went ahead of us, raised from the dead just as he is. That's what happens to us in union with Christ. We're raised with him by the glory of the Father that we too might walk in newness of life. Ah, I cut that verse off, but that's what it says. Trust me. Newness of life. When we baptize people at our church, we say, have you trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for your forgiveness of sins? And they say, yes, I have. And we say, then based on your profession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with him in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. Ah, and everybody cheers. It's awesome. Uh, but that's it. We're, we're raised to walk in newness of life. We have a new life now. It may not feel that way all the time to you, but it is. It's new, buried, dead, raised, just as Christ to walk in newness of life. So we have newness of life, and now we need to walk in it. That's a beautiful term the Bible uses a lot, that the Christian life is, is described as a walk. I had a mentor, and he would always say, Eric, how's your walk? Love that. Right in the New Testament, the, the Christian life is called the way. It, it's a journey. It's a process. And God loves the process. God loves history. He's been keeping it going for millennia after millennia. And he keeps it going, and he loves history. He loves, obviously, the messiness of it. He loves the, the humanness of it. At times, the awkwardness of it. That's the big word I notice high school kids throw around all the time. Anything they're uncomfortable about, anything. It's like, that's so awkward. Not understand. Like I was walking with my son in front of the high school, picking him up. He didn't park where I guess I should have. And I'm walking with him in front of the high school as all the kids are letting out. And he said, Dad, this is so awkward. And I said, what's awkward? And he said, We're walk I'm walking in front of the school with my dad. But I don't feel awkward. Why, why do you feel awkward? Because it's just awkward. Okay, whatever you say. I remember I was walking with Sam in the airport one time, and, and the, the carpeted floor just went up a little bit. And so I sort of tripped, and he goes, Dad, that's so awkward. And I said, no, it's about as human as you can get, Sam. It's just human. That's all it is. It's not awkward. Stop. Stop. It just drives me nuts. But uh, so funny. Um, and, and sometimes it, it can be awkward, but we stay at it. We keep at it, yes? Okay, so 
really, I am very concerned that we're going to spend the rest of our week talking about what we do to grow, and it'll get disconnected from the finished work of Christ in the gospel. Will you promise me you won't do that mentally? Will you promise me that as we talk about what we need to do and challenge ourselves to be disciplined disciples, availing ourselves to the work of the Spirit through the means of grace He's given us, that we won't slip into legalism? Promise you'll fight that. It's a human tendency we've got to go to war with. God hates grace-killing things. Hates it. Sin is, is, is the opposite of grace. It's a gift. We have a hard time with gifts, especially Americans, you know. I was, my next, my next door neighbor, I love my next door neighbor. He's just a, a wonderful man. He, he's not a Christian. Um, I, think he's, I think he's become a theist in the past 20, 23 years since we've been neighbors. But he's not a Christian yet. I'm praying for Brent all the time. And we've had great conversations. And he loves Christians. He like, he'll come over and he'll say, man, I am so thankful for you guys. You're the fabric of our society. He said, if it weren't for you guys, we'd be in complete chaos. Keep up the good work, Eric. I'm serious. I mean, <laughs> that's, what he does. that's what he does. And he's a very successful salesman. And, like, he'll come over and he'll say, Eric, I was driving to work the other day, and I thought of this great angle you could use with those Biola kids to get them to buy into the Christian thing more. Have you ever tried this with them? And he gives me all this advice on how to you know, be this effective theologian salesman with my students, yeah. And he's actually got some good ideas sometimes, but, but I just love Glenn. We were riding bikes one time, and, and I was talking to him, and I said, I was trying to get him to understand grace, and I said, Glenn, you have so many things stacked against you if you're going to understand grace. I said, first, you're American. And he's a very patriotic American. First, you're an American, and so much of American psyche and culture is about the individual pulling himself up by his bootstraps and getting it done all by himself. You know, like Louis L'Amour novels. You know, the cowboy wants to get home, but he's always riding solo, just him and his horse, and he doesn't really even need the horse, right? Um, it's just amazing. I did this myself. I did this. I accomplished this. And little kids even do it. You know, it's a four-year-old. By myself. I want to do it by myself, right? And so, so we've just got this aversion to neediness. And I said, Glenn, you're an American. I said, you're a man. And I think that's another layer. There's something about testosterone that makes men just, just sort of want to do it all by themselves in their own strength. And I said, and you're, you're an athlete. He still holds the record for the 800 at UC Riverside. He's older than I am, and they still haven't broken that. He was an amazing runner. My, I have a neighbor who net lives next to me who ran against Glenn in high school. And one day, one day I said, hey, Glenn, Tony, you guys ran against each other in high school. You remember that, Tony? I said, oh, maybe you only recognize Glenn from behind, I said. <laughs> Glenn, turn around, I said. Ah, I love that. Uh, but <laughs> so I, Tony didn't think it was very funny, I don't think. But... But I said, you're, you're uh, an American, you're a man, you're an athlete, right? You, you did something for years that's about you putting in the work and getting out of it what you deserved and deserve medals and credit for. You got that going against you? And I said, and you're a salesman who works on commission. 
He said, Glenn, all those things add up to making it really hard for you to get grace. And he goes, what? Blocks on his brakes. And he said, say that again. And he was so intrigued by this read of him and his inability right now to understand grace for, or to like the idea at all. Something in me that hates grace. And so, so please, as we spend the rest of our week talking about the nine things we do, let's never forget it's all anchored in the gospel. It's finished in Jesus. We live up to it. We've already attained, Paul says. Uh, it, it's not our own doing. Even like we said last night, the jewels in our crown that are legitimately ours end up at the feet of Jesus in a final gesture of it being all gift, all grace. We have a hard time with this. Even when we give someone a gift, we say such a stupid thing. We, we tend to say, oh, you didn't need to do that. To which we should say, I know. That's why it's called a gift. <laughs> right? It, it's not a wage. It's a gift. There you go. Didn't have to do it. Not under compulsion. No one made me. G-I-F-T, gift. There it is, right? We have a hard time with that. We always assume there's an ulterior motive or I've got to add something. My dad, when I was a kid, I'll never forget it, he couldn't borrow a, a hammer from the neighbor without saying when he returned it. You know what he would always say? I owe you one. I owe you one. And at first I thought, oh, that's really cool. He's not going to take advantage of anybody. And I, but over the years I thought about that. No, I think that mentality has a hard time with receiving anything. It's not a grace mentality. He couldn't just say, thanks. He had to say something and would say, you know what? You're not going to get a hit of me when you give me things. And so, so please promise me you'll work hard as we talk about what we do in challenging ways. Okay? See how concerned I am about this? <laughs> okay, good. So, what are the habits of grace? I think there are nine. Oh, this, this brings it home. This is Muhammad Ali's tombstone. Service to others is the rent you pay for your room in heaven. You know, I think most people read that and they go, oh, yeah, that sounds about right. That's pretty cool. How, how do you respond when you read that? Kind of gross. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? How do you respond? Yeah, I guess I'm not going to heaven, right? Why do you say that? Tell me your name. Mackenzie, why do you say that? Ah, okay. So to, to buy into that philosophy, you at least got to think you have the capacity to pay rent. Yeah. Uh, other responses? Other reactions? Okay. Right. Right. Yes. That's it. Muhammad Ali, a Muslim, does not see it that way, right? Every other religion is what we do to earn God's favor. The Christian faith is what he's done to save us. All of his own initiative. So, so uh, you, you going to say something? Go ahead. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How expensive is it? What, what does it take? 
what is this transaction? I'm, I'm paying rent. Yeah, I think most people read that and go, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That, that'll make you a real unselfish person. Will it? Is that even unselfishness at the end of the day? That I am, I'm, I'm serving you because, because I'm paying rent through serving you. It's, it's very interesting, isn't it? It, it? Most people see that and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty true. That's pretty good. I like that. A Christian should see that, and you should feel like somebody punched you as hard as they could in the stomach. And you know at his funeral, his wife said every day Muhammad would wake up and be concerned about his salvation. And he'd say, I want to go to heaven. This is a quote, what his wife said. I want to go to heaven and have a whole lot more good things to do before I get there. What a sad and burdensome and tragic way to live. So I have a friend who says, yeah, but Eric, if it had to be, if it's a choice between legalism and just people living however they want, you'd pick legalism, right? Because at least people behave. No, that's just a horrible mentality. No, this guy's a Christian too. He's just very pragmatic, you know. Um, but yeah, that, that's just deadly. So how do we grow? Here we go. We're finally getting to the nine. Yay. The first thing we do is devote ourselves to the scriptures. We need to be men and women of the word. We need to be devoted to the scriptures. Scripture saturated. So that... The truth of the word transforms us, and the truth flows out of us, and there's an instinctive transforming work that God does in our lives. We become word-based people. We're going to unpack these one at a time. This is just an introduction to the nine, okay? We need to be men and women of the word. Two, we need to be men and women of prayer. The saint who advances on his knees never retreats. Ian Bounds. Ian Bounds. Who you are on your knees before God is who you are. Prayer is a defining activity of God's people. Prayerfulness needs to define us, both in private times of prayer, one individual times of prayer, corporate times of prayer, and small groups, and in your family, and in corporate times of prayer, and a prayerfulness throughout your day. Three, worship. This doesn't just mean what uh, Jason and Nathan led us through with a couple excellent songs. It's a worshipfulness. Life is worship. We'll talk about this. Life is worship. We devote ourselves to this. Declaring God's worth in the way we think, feel, live, act, and yes, certainly we discipline ourselves to worship individually, in small groups, in your family, and corporately. But worship should be a distinctive of our lives that we devote ourselves to. These are habits of grace. Then giving. Massive emphasis on giving, primarily financially, in the Bible. It's a vital way we kill idolatry in our hearts. It's a vital way we are transformed. Now, some of these habits of grace, some of you, some people would call them spiritual disciplines, aren't typically on lists of spiritual disciplines. And that's one of the reasons I'm burdened to do this. We tend to think, now most of you said, yeah, I knew that. 
And two, I knew that. And yeah, I, I suppose I knew you devote yourself to worship to grow. Even though that one tends to be something we think about as what we do to express what we believe. But I want you to realize that worship is something we do to deepen what we believe. To clarify what we believe. Do you know sung corporate worship? If you Probably if you add it up in the entire history of the church, how Christians learned what they believed. It wouldn't be through their own personal Bible study because most Christians didn't have a Bible throughout the history of the church. They learned it through the liturgy and through the singing. That's why whenever I talk to worship leaders, I say, choose your songs in a way that are didactic, that are, that are educational. Don't just think about what people are liking right now. Think about what they need to know, what they need to learn, what they need to shore up because there's a weakness in their understanding. And as a worshiper in the congregation, please, I, I, I will often say, if you want to get criticized, ref basketball, or coach especially youth basketball, be an umpire in baseball, or be a worship leader. It's just amazing how opinionated, and I understand why we're opinionated. We tend to love the style of music that when God really worked in our lives in junior high or high school, and we just stay there, 1974, right? Or, or 94, or 2000, or whatever it is. And we said, now that's music, right? Now I could argue with you why the music I listened to in high school was music, but uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, come on. Justin Bieber, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you tell me. So, um, what's that? <laughs> but we, we sort of get stuck, but it's amazing. When you come to worship, don't just come for the feeling you want with the music you like and the style you like. Oh, how shallow, right? Come saying, Lord, I want to meet with you, and I want to grow in my understanding of you. I want to grow in my depth of knowledge of you. I want to be challenged. Maybe I want to go to this worship time and feel horrible about myself because I realize there's sin in my life and then I get in my face and I receive grace and I leave here renewed in my relationship with you because I dealt with some sin because of that worship time. You can't go looking for a particular emotion with a particular style with the, song, with the eight songs we happen to like right now. Worship songs have about an 18-month shelf life these days. So... So we've just been consumerized in so many ways. So worship is a way we grow. It's not just what we express. It's a way we grow. And giving is a vital way we kill idols in our lives. Serving. Did I work or did you do it for me, Jerry? You didn't do it? Oh, it eventually worked. I guess it was that lag. Did you ever see somebody who's trying to get it to work, and they point it at the screen. You see that? Sometimes I just want to stand up and say, the machine is back there, right? You're actually not helping. Um, but I, I'm sure I did that when I started giving presentations. But serving, now serving, and we're going to unpack these one at a time for the rest of the week. Serving is vital because Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And those who follow Jesus and want to become more like Jesus need to bear down on having servant hearts 
and living as a servant-hearted person throughout your days. And we'll unpack that in significant biblical-founded detail. Yes? Proclamation. Again, this one probably isn't on one list of spiritual disciplines that you've heard about. But as we'll see tomorrow night or maybe Thursday night. When is Monday? Thursday, Monday. A proclamation is not just what we do when we've been transformed by Jesus. It's what we do to increasingly be transformed. This, again, is not something people, people typically see as a spiritual discipline to help you grow. But when you speak well of Jesus, he becomes more, more precious to you. And I think we don't realize Philemon verse 6 says, I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you, Philemon, will have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. Isn't that interesting? So evangelism is a spiritual discipline for your own growth as well as obviously to, to make disciples. Yes? So proclamation, fellowship, again, uh, something very difficult to truly commit to for the long haul. Why? Because people are stinking annoying, right? We're, we're, we're sinful and prickly, and, and once we get to know it, you know, I watch college students. They make this really good friend when they get to college or freshman year, and they say, next year, let's room together. And then October of sophomore year, it's like, I hate you, right? Um, <laughs> Because when you get really close, when you commit, when it's not just casual, hanging out, part, when it's living life together or serving together, even cranks it to another level, now it gets hard, right? That's why when I hear a couple's dating who met on a mission trip, I think, ah, this could go somewhere because you've seen each other, tired, dirty, sweaty, you know, in circumstances outside of your comfort zone. Hey, you've seen some things you don't see at Starbucks. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, what else? Oh, this one, again, is not on lists I, that I've ever seen of, of spiritual disciplines we commit ourselves to, but suffering is something we commit ourselves to, to lean into it in both what comes our way without choosing it and, believe it or not, what comes our way because we choose it, not because we're masochists, but because we follow the man of sorrows who was familiar with suffering and acquainted with grief, and we want to become like him. And we'll unpack that in the, the nights to come. Missions. This is the last one. I've never met a really deep, mature, godly person who doesn't deeply care about the nations, who doesn't deeply care about the gospel getting to the nations the Great Commission actually being fulfilled. That, that is incredibly close to the heart of God. You can't become godly if you don't have a heart of missions, for missions. The Great Commission reach the nations mentality. Nate's sitting up here. He's a missionary in challenging places. He's an he's a amazing man sitting up here. He, he, he does not need to be convinced of number nine. And I bet it's been transformative in your own life. It's not just what you did because you were transformed. It's been transformative, especially when you commit to the dailiness of it. Yes? Yeah. Want to say anything about that?
you all hear that? Okay, he's just saying when he, when he preaches the gospel to someone, even when there's pushback, it's good for his own growth. It, it's, it's enlivening. I, I, have, I have that experience so many times when I just gulp hard and say, I know God is opening doors and wants me to talk to this person. And I don't want to. I just want to talk about the Dodgers. <laughs> and I talk about Jesus. I leave that conversation, even if the guy was gone. I leave feeling a lot. I feel, I feel more real. I, I think I'm real. There's something validating about putting into words what our, my life is based on with someone, especially maybe who's pushing back. Yeah. Okay. Them's are the habits of grace. Just a word. Some of you are saying, where is the Lord's Supper? <laughs> or baptism. I would, I, see, that's what I mean. I, I, I wanted to get the big categories. I'd put it as a subcategory of fellowship. That's what we do among the, the people of God in, in, as the saints of God. And I said that these are all rooted in the local church, and that, that sort of thing is, is what the local church is called to do these wonderful means of grace that are I would call subcategories of these broader categories. Yes? All right. Comments or questions? Let's talk. Ah, uh, smart, godly, deep people. Jeff. Yes, sir. Yeah, and, and it's important to realize the things that help us humble our hearts and, and help them to be Godward in the corporate context. For some, it may, it may be helpful to wear, wear something that says, this is serious. I, my friend Dave Talley, when he was, I think, a freshman in high school, he said, I'm going to wear a tie every day to high school. It was just a public high school in Alabama. And he said, because I want to go with a mentality that this is serious. But the fact is, you can have a suit on and have a flip-flop heart. Or, or you can have flip-flops on and a suit heart. So th the bottom line is, it, what's my heart toward God? Is there a sense of the, a healthy fear of the Lord and reverence? And, and then, then we get after what we think will be helpful in, in inclining us toward a worshipful direction. And it is. I have a friend who was raised a very conservative Roman Catholic. They, they actually... At least when we were friends as kids, his church still did masses in Latin, even though Vatican II said they didn't have to anymore. Their church said, well, we're going to keep doing it and make sure nobody understands it. But um, um, sorry about that. I just got back from a Reformation tour where the distance the church created was infuriating to Luther, and, and it is to me too. But, um, and, but when, when Johnny would go into church, he, he would genuflect. And he takes some holy water. He 
put it on, and then he'd, he'd take a knee again before he went in the pew, and, and there was a sense of, of reverence. And he came out to visit me, and I went to a really typical Southern California church with it, and it was great. He preached the gospel. The worship was phenomenal. I, I just said, oh, I know this is going to have an impact on my friend. And I said, Johnny, what would you think? And he said, the pastor was chewing gum. <laughs> that, that's what he couldn't get past. He was like, it was so flippant. It was so casual. He's like, yo, Johnny, we, we have access to God. He said, I know, but flippin'? And, and, and it was interesting. It led to a great conversation. And so, 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 yeah, worship is something we need to set our minds and attend to in a way where it will be transformative and honoring to God in the expression. Beautiful, Jeff. Yeah. Tell me your name. Tell me your name. Sean. Hey, Sean. Great question, Sean. I love it. So, the Word of God, the Bible, is our ultimate authority as believers in, in an evangelical context, which is what this is. So, we're going to make some assumptions there. I know you're not all necessarily identifying that way, but um, so in an evangelical context, the, the, the Word of God, the Scriptures, are our ultimate authority. Why? Because we believe God himself inspired the human authors to write exactly what he wanted. And so we believe in an inspired Bible. We believe in an authoritative Bible that because God himself inspired these human writers, that it has authority in our lives. And we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture that it doesn't tell you how to change your transmission. So it doesn't tell you everything you, you want to know in life. But it tells you everything that's most important in life, even the attitude you should have when you change your transmission and it doesn't work. Yeah? So that, that's the more fundamental thing. So we believe in the inspiration, the authority, the sufficiency of Scripture. But sometimes I wonder, Sean, and the rest of us, if the doctrine related to Scripture that is most important to emphasize these days is the clarity of Scripture perspicuity that it's fundamentally clear actually the reformers that i just got back from immersing myself in for a while now one of the main things they believed about the bible is that a farmer should read it right you don't need to have letters after your name or no fancy latin words or who carl bart was to be able to read the bible you don't need to be in the church hierarchy to read it the priesthood of all believers and the clarity of Scripture came together to bring about the Reformation. And there was an intent. Luther risked his life to get the Bible in German in the hands of German people to be able to read it. 
because he believed it was a basic clear that a farmer could understand it, realizing that it's mostly written by really common people for really common people. There are a few portions, like Job is about as glorious Hebrew as you're ever going to find. I mean, it's lofty. It's hard to imagine any Hebrew literature more wonderful than Job, just from a, ling- uh, a language sense. But, but generally speaking, the Bible's clear. And, and we can forget that. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't some passages that are difficult to understand. And I think we could, I have some ideas about exactly why God inspired difficult passages. I don't think it was like, oh, I should have done that one a little better. That didn't come out too, you know. You know, um, went and preached to the saints in Noah's time. What's that about? And Peter, who wrote that, has the nerve to say Paul said things that can be hard to understand. But, but, um, but yeah, the clarity of Scripture that it's basically clear that that if you, depending on the Spirit's illuminating work, you're able to apply basic interpretive principles to understanding the any text of of, of written words actually. What's the author's intent? What's the context? What, what's the audience? What's the purpose? And then you follow the, the basic language of it, and you can come up with a clear understanding. I think the clarity of Scripture, and I think scholars, of which I'm in that guild, are partly to blame for this, even evangelical scholars, because we've been working hard to combat subjective interpretation where people say, oh, well, what this means to me is. And we go around the Bible saying, well, what it means to me is, oh, isn't that cool? We've got completely different meanings. And it's, isn't God cool? No, ah, that's not. We, we want to know what Paul meant when he wrote this passage, right? Inspired by God. And so to combat subjectivity and interpretation, we emphasize background issues and linguistic issues and cultural issues of the first century or third century B.C. And, and then we say, yeah, you got to know all this stuff. And you can give people the impression you need a Ph.D. in Greco-Roman backgrounds to understand the Bible. And then we train preachers sometimes to come up with these, these things from history somewhere that seem to unlock the meaning of this passage. And people say, I would have never come up with that with just the passage. And I say, then I doubt you were supposed to come up with it. But there's job security in preaching like that. You need me to unlock the keys of Scripture. When it's basic, it's my great-grandfather never graduated from high school, but my man knew the Word because he read it every morning for about an hour. And so when he was in his 90s, when I knew him, he knew the Bible. You could ask him anything about it, and he, he'd pull it out. And so, so to be devoted to the Scriptures to the point where we understand them well enough and understand where we are in redemptive history when we're in a passage is so important so we understand the parts and the whole, and then we really can put it in front of us, gather around, and say, what does this mean? What does this mean? And then we can say, how did they interpret it in the history of the church? And some of the things that are said to be up for grabs now, the church has never disagreed on once. That's what's amazing to me. Now, for instance, there were American Christians who got the Bible dead wrong on slavery. I have a friend who did his Ph.D. dissertation in historical theology on the hermeneutics used by pro-slavery preachers, uh, on the interpretive principles, methods they use to get to a pro-slavery view. Why? So we don't do that again. So we realize the way you get it wrong 
by imposing cultural values of your day on the text and fitting it in there. And throughout the history of the church, that's when we run into problems. When we force the Bible into our culture, rather than see the, the, the Bible as often transformative of our culture. We need to translate it into our culture, but not transform it into something than what it's ever meant. So I, I think knowing the Bible, understanding the nature of God's revelation in Scripture, and, and realizing that Christians have mostly agreed on almost every major doctrine of the church throughout our history. It's gotten obscured at times why we needed things like the Reformation, but generally Christians haven't disagreed on this. So to sort of throw up your hands and say, well, you know, this, this sexual morality thing, who knows, really? Maybe we'll look back and think we were wrong on this. Well, you're in pretty solo company relative to Christians throughout the history, history of the church, if that's what you're thinking. That's why it's important for us to realize what the Bible's clear on, what the Bible emphasizes. And then what it's less clear on, but still emphasizes and as important and then what we would put in the opinions category, you think the Bible has something to say in it, but nothing like those core doctrines or convictions. And then it's important to know what the Bible doesn't answer clearly. I find it so freeing to know the Bible well enough so that when somebody asks me a question, I can say, you know what, I don't think the Bible tells us. That's a cool, interesting question, but all we would have to do is speculate, and, and that may be helpful. But so, so to know what the Bible says and also know what it doesn't say. I tell my students all the time that becoming better theologians sometimes means putting your foot down on the pedal of convictions more and sometimes taking it off because you've realized the Bible doesn't teach that nearly like you thought you did, Th thought it did, yes? I did a study on angels once and I couldn't believe how much I believed about angels. That's nowhere in the Bible, <laughs> right? Like definitely the precious moments angels are not anywhere in the Bible, not at all. <laughs> Good. One more comment or question. Tell me your name. Yes. Hi, Pat. Yes. Yes. Right, so I think, I think a better understanding of the Trinity helps everything in our lives, even, how, even eating. I, I think it helps everything, I'm serious. And it certainly helps prayer. So I think the, the pattern of prayer that the, the Trinity and the Bible gives us is that when we pray, we're praying to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. And I think it's very important that we pray consciously that way. So none of the persons of the Trinity are sort of left out because we're praying to the Father. The only reason I'm able to pray at all to the Father is because I'm entirely depending on the Son to get there. And the only reason I have any prayerful Godward inclination is because the Spirit's doing it in my heart. And I'm grateful for that and appreciative. Now having said that as the general pattern, I think because we know the particular roles the persons of the Trinity play and how they relate to each other, it's perfectly fine to say, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. It's not okay to say, Father, thank you for dying for my sins, which I hear all the time because we don't pay much attention to how we start our prayers. We usually say, Heavenly Father, thank you for dying on a cross. And I'm like, wait, wait. That's all actually an ancient heresy called patripassianism. You don't want to say that. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. Father, thank you for sending the Son to die for my sins. Now we got to, here we go, keep praying, right? So, um, and I think it's fine to say, Holy Spirit, thank you for the conviction of sin I'm experiencing right now. Yeah. Holy Spirit, would you fill me today so I can walk 
in newness of life today. I, I think so, so the general pattern is there, but then I think the, the particular roles are, are great. Help? One more. Tell me your name. Sammy. Two Sams. All right. Pretty great. Yeah, so we're going to make some qualifying observations first thing tomorrow night, and the first one is going to be, and I wonder if some of you are noticing this as I went through these. S the first qualifying observation, actually, I think I have it here. There you go. Habits of grace all work interdependently. I hope you're realizing that as we went through. You're like, okay, if, if the word's got to be a priority, I better go to the word prayerfully. And if I go to the word seeking to know God, I better go to it worshipfully. And my worship better be informed by scripture. And I better pray in the context of worship and not just sing. Yeah. So, and we'll, we'll walk through these and see how interdependently working they all are necessarily. That's why we want to consciously think of all of them together as well as individually. Yeah. So I would put introspection, meditation um, in, in several of these Uh, so I want to go focusing on God, aware of the state of my heart, which is how I would summarize what you were just saying, in word, in prayer, in worship, in all of them. Yeah, yeah. In all of them. They all can and should include that kind of component. 